Hello everyone, I'm Jay Williams, and welcome back to Nat Alliance Now. This week, we have part four of our cyber risk series. As always, I'm joined by Paul Burkett, and our conversation today picks up where we left off in part three. If you haven't heard the last installment, I highly recommend giving it a listen before jumping into this one. If you have heard our previous episodes, you'll know how much insight and information Paul has to offer on the subject of cyber. And this installment is no different. So let's dive back into the conversation. So we've talked about the transfer, not insurance and insurance transfers. And we talked about first and third party coverages. You know, you also mentioned, you know, regulatory issues when we when we went through that discussion. So those violation of laws and, and regulations can cause issues. Can coverage be purchased for that exposure, Paul? Uh, yes, you can. And elements that are really out there, such as the Health Insurance Portability Accountability Act, as well as each of the state's own security of personal identifiable information. So you're going to be looking for how we're going to get defense for these regulatory actions and how we're going to pay the fines and penalties. So the insurance companies will provide that coverage. Some will do it by endorsement. Some will bring it in as an insuring agreement that you have to trigger onto the deck page, and in other words, have a separate item in doing that. Uh, you may see language that'll say contributions by the insured to a consumer redress fund for New York, regulatory fines and claims expenses. There'll be definitions that are specific to the regulatory defense, defining wrongful acts, and they'll define privacy uh, incident. And then you may even see the language that comes out and says, for these laws, or you may see that they'll come in and specifically say any state law, federal law, or country law uh, anywhere in the world, which then tells us we have an element of having to have worldwide coverage uh, because of the elements. So you're going to have specific language that will require you to look at, and in that, there will be a different limit. And the wrongful act defense, the regulatory defense of this, may be inside the limit. And that's another consideration that has to be looked at. And what's the extent of the fines and penalties? How much will be paid? And again, you have to read each policy clearly and to understand what's going to be going into it. You may have a separate coverage just called fines and penalties. And it may say only to the extent that such fines and penalties are insurable by law, which then incurred conjunction with a claim made against an insured by a credit card company. But we also have this situation where you're non-compliant to the payment card industry data security standard. And if you're non-compliant in that, and there's fines from Visa, MasterCard, does the fines and penalties coverage include coverage from the credit card company? And that could, could be quite significant. And so I'm highlighting that you're not there just for fines and penalties of the state or the federal government or another country. You have to look at the other providers, and that being the MasterCard, Discovery Card, American Express, and the right that they have for fines and penalties against your company, that your client, that is taking in credit cards. There are some requirements for this kind of coverage. Usually, that's another set of questions that are on the application. Uh, the underwriter wants to know, have you installed and maintained a firewall to protect the data that you're collecting for credit cards? Do you have a way to protect the stored data? Do you encrypt or transmit the cardholder data? 
Uh, do you develop and maintain a secure system and application? Do you assign a unique ID to each party that gets access to the computers? Do you restrict physical access to cardholder data? Do you regularly test the security system and process? And do you maintain a policy that addresses information security? And these are requirements that are coming not from the insurance company as much as it's coming from the credit card companies. They're saying, we're giving you access to the RUs of the credit card, but you're guaranteeing us that you will do this. Failure to do so gives us the right to do the fine and penalty. And of course, the underwriter is saying, well, if that's what the credit card companies are saying, I sure as heck want to know that you're doing some of this as well. And so we are now seeing on the applications, if you're going after the PCI DSS fines and penalty coverage, that you have to answer these questions and answer them succinctly. So what you'll see is language that say, we'll pay on your behalf damages and claim expenses you become legally obligated to pay in excess of the applicable retention, generally there's going to be an SIR, resulting from a PCI DSS assessment first made against you and reported to us during the policy period or the extended peer reporting period arising out of a wrongful act on or after the retroactive date. There you see it. It's a claims made coverage. And so there'll be definitions of what is a PCI DSS assessment, what is the data security standard that you're going to be on to. So there's going to be different coverages, different language. And then, of course, we have to come in and say, okay, what's the, what's the cost? What's the fines and costs? As we found out on uh, one of the uh, classic ones we talk about, which is uh, the shoe company that was hacked into it, the fines and penalties alone from MasterCard and Visa was $1.4 million. So what kind of limit do you want to have in terms of DSW shoes where they had to pay a fine and penalty? Well, what do you do? What does your retailer, what does your client have? And think about it. Anytime you've got a point-of-sale device, you've got a PCI DSS exposure. And we got to make sure we have some kind of fines and penalties coverage. for. Well, there's some agents that are out there they think P the fines and penalties includes PCI DSS. It may not. And you're going to have to evaluate and determine what will be the adequate coverage on this. Then we have, jumping to the other side of this, we got the website. And most of these clients have websites. Some are not very active. Some are interactive. But there's content liability. And included in that, we then create some very broad categories of potential liability. Uh, do we have personal injury coverage? Well, we have to coordinate now with coverage B of the CGL and the personal injury, but maybe I need to have some libel, slander, trade libel, infliction of emotional distress, invasion of privacy, and interference that are of the individual's right of publicity under personal injury coverage. Well, does the coverage B pick that up on the website? Remember, the website coverage under coverage B is only for your goods and services being on that. So you may have a problem with your coverage B coverage and you may need something of personal injury. Then we have, or if you remember, when we first started this in the non-insurance transfer, the commercial intellectual property violations, the infringement, uh, the trademark, trade name, dress logo, meta tag, slogan, service mark. Maybe we need to have some of that coverage brought into our website media content. Then we have web-based activities, improper deep linking, framing, electronic content, and of course, what if you got a blog site? What if you got a bulletin board? What do you've got uh, Facebook links, LinkedIn, Snapchat, and others in your social media liability? That's not covered under the coverage B. 
And so you've got those four broad categories you have to think about in terms of your website uh, media content or website publishing liability that you need to bring to the forefront. Some carriers will call it website media liability, some will call it content liability, and some may say website publishing. And what is included in all that? Does it include emails, PDFs, photos? Uh, and does it include other non-website media activities such as broadcast media, YouTube videos you're putting up, public appearances items that you may have? So you got to think about all of these items as you go into it. And remember, only about half of all cyber privacy insurers provide any kind of website or content liability coverage or website professional liability. And your client has a website, and you're going to have to look at that and say, I need broader coverage. And included with that, then, if I need the broader coverage, there'll be additional premium to bring in that kind of a website professional liability exposure. And that is another dynamic that's out there. Some coverage forms may say internet media liability, meaning it's only the electronic format. And if you go into the electronic publishing wrongful act definitions, you'll have to look at it. But one of the items that's interesting is a lot of them will not pick up can spam and telemarketing actions that are out there. And you may need to bring in that coverage because your client may have an e-commerce platform where they have e-catalogs. And in essence, they are sending out unsolicited uh, emails to folks. And that's creating can spam to get them to come look at the catalog. And that's the electronic publishing and uh, almost to that. So you're going to have to look at and evaluate the extent of the coverage and what is not included within that. And then the last area that I highlighted earlier was the cyber-related BI and PD. Coverage for cyber-related BI and PD is necessary because cyber and privacy insurance policies virtually always exclude coverage for direct BI and PD. So this is sort of a contingent uh, BI, PD type situation. The example I can give you is I work with with a client is a hospital's computer system was hit with a denial of service attack, causing it to shut down. As a result, for eight hours, the hospital was unable to remotely monitor the patients in its cardiac unit. During the downtime, three patients suffer fatal injuries because changes in their conditions could not be ascertained via the electronic monitoring unless they were not given immediate necessary treatment. Lawsuits are brought by the patients of states against the hospital, yes, they died, alleging that the hospital's negligence in failing to prevent the intrusion in the computer system caused the patient's death. So here's your contingent BI and PD based upon an attack on the system, the unauthorized access. So the broader, more robust cyber forms will have this cyber-related BI and PD liability. And you have to look at it, and you have to think about how it will coordinate with the commercial general liability and the coverages you may have in the CGL. And in the hospital's case, we had to coordinate and think about how does it apply to the medical a malpractice coverage for the BI and PD. And so you really have to think about the related aspects of the BI and the PD exclusions that are on the cyber and the contingent situations that are going to be created for the BI and PD type liability. So what we have to look at is, do we have exclusions under the CGL that may have an impact, such as the CG2106, which allows some bodily injury, where the CG2107 has no bodily injury into it, so there is no coverage. So you've got to be aware of the limitations on the CGL. 
And if the CGL does not cover any kind of a catastrophic claim situation, then you have to look at, well, what's the umbrella say? What type of garden variety CGL? So be careful when you start playing with the commercial general liability form and a coordination of coverage with the BI and the TD. And you're going to have to look at the language for that. Now, here's the problem with this. Not all coverage forms have cyber-related BI and PD coverage for it. Some tech E&O policies may have some coverage for uh, what I'll call contingent BI and PD, but the cyber forms do not. And that becomes a question you have to look into as you start to relate to the uh, robustness of the coverage and the identified exposures for your client. You know, Paul, uh, a lot of businesses have been doing e-commerce, have had e-commerce exposure, you know, for a while, including before COVID. I'm sure there's got to be a significant exposure from business income and, and, and also from a crime perspective. So what solutions are available to agents for them? Wow, there's, that's a wide open area that's out there. But uh, cyber and privacy insurance policies have two types of uh, time element coverage. You know, the business interruption and extra expense. And it's different than the property form. Remember, the perils that are necessary under the property form are not the same perils we have under cyber. And the perils that are under the property form triggering the CP0030, business income with extra expense using the ISO form, are not the same that we have here. So we have different triggers. We have violations of firewalls, unauthorized access, other elements that trigger this. So you have to think differently in terms of the triggers for the cyber uh, business income and extra expense. It's recognized that not every carrier will provide you business income and extra expense coverage. And so there's a philosophical debate going on out there, what they want to do and what they want to provide. Some carriers will give you business income and extra expense, but it's done through an endorsement. It's not built in as an insuring agreement. So you're going to have to find out how each of the carriers will work through that. The insurer shall pay the company any business in income, loss, dependent business interruption loss, extra expense that's sustained during the period of restoration. Some of these first party are bringing in the dependent property. Why is that so important? Think about where do you have your website? Is that a dependent property location? Where do you have your cloud storage? That's a dependent property location. Can that create a business interruption or lot extra expense? And the key, here, again, just like we have under the property cause of loss forms and the time element forms, is what is the definition of business income? Business income can be like the ISO, net profit before income and tax, plus normal operating expenses, which could include payroll. Uh, those could be other key components as you start to look at the first-party time element. Uh, but the key that drives the first-party time element coverages under this form is what's excluded, what's not included. And you're going to have items such as update, restore, replace, modify any digital assets. So that tells you there's no rectification cost for the extra expense. You may not have coverage for trade secrets or uh, value of digital assets or proprietary type items that have been compromised. You will always see an exclusion for third-party liability and uh, third-party uh, property damage. Contractual penalties may be an excluded item underneath this. You have to look through and decide what you're getting in the business interruption on that. And then, of course, if it's a multi-insuring agreement type coverage form, the other insuring agreements are probably going to be excluded 
within the time element as you start to look into it. The dependent business interruption, I can't stress enough, there is a lot of dependent business interruption. Where is your data service? Now think about an insurance agency. Where do you have your data currently being stored? Is it on your server or is it on somebody else's server? That's dependent property. How many of your clients have that dependent property? And then the extra expense, always look into the period of restoration, how long it takes, and does it include rectification and fixing of the problem? That's an extra expense. Also, the expediting expense necessary to get this fixed and up and running on the forensic side of that. But just like the business interruption, there are exclusions. And you have to look at and evaluate, and each of those are different. And each of them have a component that is telling you, I may have another exposure. One of the common ones in extra expenses, it says any costs or expenses to correct any deficiencies, identify or remediate software errors or vulnerabilities, or costs to update, replace, modify, upgrade, restore, maintain, or improve any security system or computer system. As soon as you see that, you know you don't have rectification costs, and you're going to need rectification costs, separate limit. Included in that is data restoration. How much is it going to cost for you to come back in and restore that data? Let's say you got hit with ransomware and you paid the ransom, but you can't get the thing to work. You have to restore the data. How long does that take? What does that cost include? What's the research to do all of that creates a problem? Well, with that kind of language, it's not going to be covered under the extra expense. So that becomes a key element onto that. There are other exposures we have to think about too, and that is the element of uh, what I refer to as the first-party theft property coverage. I alluded to that earlier, and that was the elements of data asset coverage, cyber extortion, computer fraud, funds transfer, and social engineering. Now, not all of these five are offered, and you may have to ask, is there endorsements? Are there coverages for that? And you have to look into it. So like data asset coverage, uh, this covers the element of research I highlighted earlier that was excluded on extra expense. Does it include the recapture of that lost data? Does it include the restoration of that? Does it have its own limit? And how does it handle? Is it a reimbursement? Yes, most of these are reimbursement coverages and your client has to incur the cost and then get into it. So then there's going to be a payment for that claim. How do you handle the data asset coverage? Then there's the cyber extortion coverage. We talked about the ransomware in our first session together, and how are we going to handle the ransomware and the ransomware monies in terms of that? What are the limitations underneath that? Most of the time, they will say ransom monies are required. There's an extortion demand. Uh, you'll pay the money to a computer security system to come in and assess and make recommendations. I've had one client where the Forensic came in and said you should pay the uh, ransomware, and the forensic was dealing with the FBI, and they looked at it, we can't fix this, so pay the ransomware. And that became an element of the exposure. And then you have agreement to pay the cost of hiring to negotiate with the cyber extortion so that you can get that on here. And they're getting more and more sophisticated in the cyber extortion. They're using artificial intelligence to increase this exposure. And the encryption that is starting to be used is quite complex uh, for a lot of the data that's out there on cyber extortion. Then we have the computer fraud coming in where we intentionally and fraudulently unauthorized access into a computer system in a theft of money or data. 
And there's some coverage restrictions in here, one of those being that employee acts are excluded. Rogue employees are not going to be covered under computer fraud coverage. Well, then what does that mean under the crime form? Do I have fidelity coverage and under computer fraud? Will that cover them over under the crime form, or do I have to modify the computer fraud coverage? Also, do I have cyber extortion, computer fraud? Do I have cyber thief type of getting bank account numbers and doing other items? You got to think through ATMs. Think about any of the elements of getting some of these credit cards. The computer fraud is going to be a big item. Then the funds transfer fraud can be a cyber coverage item. But again, what is the computer cyber form for funds transfer fraud? How does that compare to the cyber to the crime funds transfer fraud coverage form that you have? And you have to compare the two of those. And then understand what do you get in computer fraud versus fund transfer fraud. And the key difference between those is that the fund transfer fraud is that the later involves transfer of monies from one financial institution to another. In contrast, computer fraud is the hackers obtaining specific numbers and passwords and doing that to the financial institution. So you're going to need both. But those become key questions. Now, do I get that in my cyber coverage? And the big item everybody's been talking about has been social engineering or fraudulent instruction coverage. Some of the crime forms will provide that. Some of the uh, cyber crime forms will provide it. The problem is the crime forms, usually you can't get the limits that you may need. So you're going to look to the social engineering coverage that you're going to get under a cyber crime form. And so you got to look at all of these elements and start saying, okay, where am I best to ask for a premium dollars from my client to give them the better coverage that's here. So understanding what is social engineering, the fraudulent instructions, the impersonator situation and impersonation coverage that you have to have, looking at and making sure they have the systems in place so the funds don't take place and going into that. And there's a lot of loss scenarios that are out there that are taking place. And uh, I've had as high as a $13 million claim on social engineering, so that's just a highlight. So give us an idea uh, of some of the other coverage provisions that agents need to be aware of. Well, there are several of them, and there's several of them that create problems, and there's no uniformity. Um, limits and deductibles, problems on limits and deductibles. Is it per insuring agreement? Is there an aggregate? Uh, do I have sublimits? So what are you doing in each of those categories has to be evaluated. Then you may have deductibles that apply for each different insuring agreement. You may have an SIR. Uh, you may have an aggregate deductible because you may have triggered multiple insuring agreements. And so knowing what are the limits, how they apply, how the deductibles for SIRs apply, are there aggregates, all become important parts in terms of the comparison if you're looking at side-by-side of -side some coverage forms. The other area that's problematic is the insuring agreements is to look at who's the insured. Who are we bringing in? Are we bringing in all past entities? Are we bringing in the current entities? Do we bring in additional insured coverage automatically or do we have to add it on by endorsement? Do I have to think about for the first party coverage some lost payee type situations? So we have to look at the first and third party insured. Who gets access? Who gets all into that? And then the, the language about what's claims expense or defense expense or uh, what we call damages are defined terms in the policy. And you have to read those carefully 
And specifically, when we look at those languages, claims expense, damage expense, or defense, what's not covered? What's not included in that? And we may say, whoa, I thought we had coverage for that. A common item that'll show up under claims expense or damage expense is an exclusion for fines and penalties. Well, then you go, okay, wait a minute, do I have separate fines and penalties coverage? Uh, becomes a key trigger in looking at the, those clauses and the language that's in that. And the last item that most people forget, don't spend time looking at, is the settlement provision. And most of the policies that you're going to deal with have a consent to settle clause. In other words, the insurance company can settle this, and you have to agree with it. And if you don't agree with the settlement, the insurance company says, fine, here's what we put on the table. Any other costs above this, including defense expenses, are yours to pay. So understanding the settlement provisions and the consent to settle create other cost elements that you have to consider in comparing uh, the coverages on that. Another little settlement provision is who has the right to choose uh, defense counsel. And defense counsel may be allowed to the insured from a list that's approved by the insurance company. Uh, some may say, no, uh, we choose defense counsel because we only want those that are experienced in this area. And a lot of those have uh, some pretty onerous agreements that the party who is using their defense counsel have to sign and agree to. And so we have other contractual elements that we have to look into in terms of who's providing the defense. Those are just issues that have come up to the forefront as we start to well, look into this. You know, when you think about cyber insurance and, and, and what's covered by cyber insurance versus other policies, and it's very broad, but we know that cyber insurance doesn't cover everything. Uh, walk us through some of the common exclusions that agents should be looking for. Wow, that's all over the place. But, you know, some of them are going to have uh, exclusions about fraud, criminal, and dishonest acts. So then you need to look at your crime form and your employee dishonesty. How does that work? You'll see exclusions for BI and PD, which then we talked about the contingent bodily injury and property damage. Employment-related claims are always going to be excluded. Uh, employment, uh, retirement, income security, or ERISA will be excluded. War, invasion, insurrection will be excluded. And then there's an exclusion that's bothersome to me, and that's called the professional services. And professional services exclusions may say, we will not cover anything unless we specifically list it. And this is called the professional services exclusion. And if it's not listed, you're only going to provide web services or something like that, and you do other things, you're not going to have coverage. You'll see patent software copyright infringement exclusions mechanical or electrical electro, electrical breakdown failure, unlawful collection of PII information, personal identifiable, fair to follow minimum required security practices. So you're going to run into a whole set segment of that. And what's interesting is each insuring agreement has some of its own exclusions. And so there's not a commonality of exclusion where an exclusion that shows up in the third-party liability may not apply over onto the first party. And so you're going to have to be aware of and think through those as you go into it. What are um, some of the markets that are available out there? I know there's you know, uh, quite a few, at least in comparison to what there were three or four or five years ago. But what are some of the markets that you see out there? 
Well, there are over 65, insurance, 65, 66 insurance companies that offer some type of cyber insurance, some by endorsement, some by that. But the primary players that really are dominating the market right now are AIG, Allianz, Allied World, Ascent, Axia, XL, Beasley, uh, Berkeley Cyber Risk, Berkshire Hathaway, CFC, Chubb, Cincinnati, CNA. Uh, there's a group out there called uh, E-Franchiser Suite, Hanover, the Hartford, Hiscox, Liberty Specialty, Markel, One Beacon, Philadelphia, TDC Specialty, Tokyo Marine, HCC, Traveler, Zurich. And there's other syndicates in London that are also providing coverage uh, for mm. the products. There's, there's quite a few, and it, and some of them are really great companies. So I mean, well, all of them are really great companies. So this is this has really been eye opening, Paul. I mean, it's a discussion here, and the discussions that we've had, but even more so when we get in, we we start talking about insurance coverage. So kind of give us a quick uh, recap, if you will, of the discussion that we've had. Well, cyber and privacy insurance continues to evolve. It's becoming high demand, high level of claim, and there's an increasing level of threat, as we indicated in our first session. Litigation over coverage interpretation is increasing, and COVID-19 has definitely added uh, new demand for potential cyber insurance. Start thinking about new insurance purchases, new items concerning the working from home and the exposures related to that. Insurers, or especially those with lots of cyber experience, are refining their underwriting tools. So they're making increasing valuable risk management services available, but they're asking for more information. And they're trying to help you understand the coverages that are there. So if you get a chance, go onto one of their websites, listen to their YouTube video to try to understand what's going on. The market is starting to mature. Uh, insurers are more often insisting that the client have higher participation, in other words, higher retention limits and deductibles, especially in the retail and the healthcare segments that are asking for higher and higher items. Coverages that were easier to find are now changing. For example, PCI uh, DSS is a good example. They're demanding that you now have stronger security standards matching up to the payment card industry data security standard. So we're seeing those elements as we start to go through and bring this to that. Uh, those are trends. Ransomware is going to stick around, and we're going to have some new dynamics that get into that. Well, Paul, I know I say this every time we get together, but uh, I so appreciate the knowledge and the information that you bring to the table. And I'm amazed every time that we talk about cyber, although I shouldn't be, and I learn something new every single time and it's such a joy to sit here and to listen to you share and transfer your knowledge to me and to the people that listen to the podcast so you know on behalf of myself and the national alliance thank you so much for all you do for us i, I so appreciate you thanks so very much thank you for your time and thank everybody who listens to this podcast for your time too hopefully you'll find this useful all right, that's it for this episode of Nat Alliance Now's Cyber Risk Series. We have one more installment coming up, so make sure you're on the lookout for that, as well as other podcasts from the National Alliance on all your devices and online at scic.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Nat Alliance Now.